Um, we are approaching the very end of Genesis. We're not quite there. We've got one chapter left, but this is the end of chapter 49. Let me just pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for, for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. Um, and all, all of your word is inspired by you. So, Lord, we do pray that you would help us by your spirit to really understand and to glean everything you'd want us to learn from today's passage. So help us, Lord, as we read and meditate on your word. Amen. All right, so I've divided today's passage into two. So open your Bibles, if you've got them, or your phone, Genesis 49. We'll look at verse uh, 13 through to 28. And then we'll return to the last part of chapter 49 at the end. So um, as Jacob's life draws to a close, Jacob has just given prophecies for his first four sons. That was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, which we looked at last week. Um, And now he continues in verse 13. So chapter 39 of Genesis, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. And so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Riders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, and yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty, mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So I was reminded when I was thinking about um, Jacob and his relationships with his son of my relationship with my grandma. My grandma was quite obviously born well before me. She met my grandpa as a wounded soldier in World War II, and she died just over five years ago and asked me to conduct her funeral. But much like Joseph and his fancy coat, I was grandma's favorite. During the entire period that our two lives overlapped, she told me often, Ty, you just know that you are my favorite. And to the extent that her favoritism wasn't blatant enough, for much of my earlier years, I gloated about this to my brothers. It's quite icky, right? And so it's reminiscent of the favoritism towards Joseph and then later Benjamin by their father Jacob. Early in their lives, you'll recall the great hatred that the brothers had for Joseph, fueled by their father's favoritism for him. But over time, as they came to appreciate how sincere and profound their father's favoritism was, The brothers were afraid of their father's outsized love for Benjamin. Because of the enormity of their father's love, Judah himself was willing to put his neck on the line in Benjamin's place. 
So it was by God's work in Judah's life that he was willing to risk his own life in uh, Egyptian captivity to ensure that his favored son, Benjamin, was returned uh, to, to, to his father. So favoritism is also um, at play from the mouth of Jacob in this passage too. But it's a different sort of favoritism. In this list of the 12 sons who become the head of the 12 tribes, we learn from Jacob that some will be lifted up and some will be brought low. Those favored by God are very obviously distinguished and exalted. They're given disproportionate blessing and those judged by God face hardship and ruin. God very obviously used Jacob's favoritism for his good purposes in the life of Joseph and his family and all of the descendants of Jacob. And now Jacob is given foreknowledge by God to be able to speak clearly about God's favor, God's plan and the destiny he has for each man's family. So in this portion of scripture, we're actually looking at Jacob's dying words. These are the words of benediction over his 12 boys. And notice that he doesn't speak uh, to each son one at a time. Instead, what he says to one son, he says in the company uh, of, of all of them, in the hearing of all 12. So each son uh, can be sobered by the warnings that he gives, and each son uh, must hear and respect what God is choosing to do amongst uh, the siblings. So when he speaks to his gathered family, it's a mixture of things. It's in part a description of the character and the nature of each son. It reflects some of the son's history, and most strikingly, it's also a prophetic foretelling of the future of each man's family. In this way, Jacob is uh, telling of God's differing blessings and judgments on each of his sons. And there's this uncanny link, which is kind of interesting, between the personality that's given by God to each man and the future that God has in store for him. So as we look at the unfolding of history revealed by Scripture, we get this remarkable evidence of the potent accuracy of Jacob's spirit-inspired prophetic final words. Most of what Jacob proclaims here takes 400 years to fully come to pass for the 12 men who become the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah. But something strikes me about this passage, and that's the rich interplay between an all-knowing, all-powerful God and us as fallible humans. God's omniscience, all-knowingness, is on display, but so too is his generosity in revealing these things to Jacob and his sons. And God's omnipotence, his power to determine the course of history, also weaves closely with the obedience and the wickedness of the people who he created and instructed. I think it raises questions of fairness and justice. I think it might naturally stir discomfort for anyone who feels that they ought to be able to set their own course, to be able to run their own race and to achieve outcomes independent of the sovereign Lord of all things. So after last week looking at the first four brothers and culminating in Judah, you might recall that Judah is like the highest peak that the family reaches in the way his life and legacy lead toward Christ. But let's briefly consider what Jacob says to these eight remaining brothers. And we'll slow down with the final two. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Um, over time, Zebulun's tribe does settle near the seashore and benefits from all the lucrative sea trade. But here's a really cool insight from Jacob's prophecy. Zebulun does not choose the sea. Uh, after, his, after Jacob's words, the tribes are casting lots to divide the land. And what was Zebulun's lot? It was the land bordering the sea. In contrast, Issachar's descendants have a heritage um, centered upon agricultural work. We read, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. 
So Issachar's descendants are like a load-bearing beast, like a donkey, and they must work for others. They lack ambition and motivation, and they end up settling for slavery because it's easier. So they seek in a short-sighted way to increase their comfort. The metaphor of a strong donkey lying between sheepfolds may be giving a picture of a donkey who finds its place between um, uh, two sheep pens where the shepherd would throw manure. So seeking comfort, the donkey would then lie down, snuggled in the warm manure. Yep, might be very comfortable, but it's definitely not ideal, right? Jacob now addresses Dan. Dan shall judge his people as, the, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a shepherd in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So Dan's legacy seems to be a tragic one. There's this great mismatch between the potential of Dan's inheritance and what he's done with it. The tribe of Dan seems to be unsatisfied with the inheritance given by God. And so they abandon God to fuel their desire by coveting what Micah has in Judges 18. And the reference to a snake conjures up this picture of a hungry snake looking for food, being sneaky and treacherous and ultimately violent, biting with deadly venom, venom anyone who threatens him. And so too with Dan, with a mixture of deception, intimidation and outright violence, the tribe of Dan takes what belongs to Micah and convinces one of those priests to abandon his post. When challenged by Micah, who they have wronged, the men of Dan berate him for simply raising his voice at them and tell them, tells him, tell Micah to move along or be murdered. And then they set upon a quiet, peaceful village and they just slaughter everyone. They burn it to the ground and they rename it the town of Dan as they rebuild amongst the blood-soaked ashes. This is a terrible historical account, a terrible legacy, but also a very cautionary tale of the danger of giving way to sin. Sin genuinely allows wrong desires to build and build and escalate until it ruins families, ruins lives, and ruins communities. But Dan is also the tribe of Samson, whose, whose story you'll remember, like the prophecy, is a mixture of strength and trickery and tragedy. And so the bite of Samson even when he's weakened and blinded, is fatal when he single-handedly crushes the, uh, the, the pagan temple upon himself and his enemies. Uh, Dan's name in Hebrew means to judge, which in one sense looks to uh, the tribe of Dan being judge of the people, but also will ultimately mean that God will judge Dan. It's interesting that the tribe of Dan doesn't seem to be mentioned amongst the other tribes of Israel in Revelation 7, 5 to 8. There seems to be some variation in the way that the Bible records the tribes, so I can't be sure, but John's omission could indicate a judgment on Dan for its sin. At the end of this thing towards Dan, Jacob proclaims, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He's praying for God to be faithful to the covenant promises, to apportion mercy as he chooses, to deal justly with his children and their descendants. Jacob's prayer is an expectant one. It's full of anticipation for the Lord to bring to salvation bring salvation to all who are his. And in verses 17 to 19, I don't know if you picked up on it, but Jacob's possibly being used by God through the Spirit-inspired prophecy to remind us of Genesis 3.15, that the, serpent's, uh, the serpent will bruise the heel and the seed of the woman will fatally bruise and crush the serpent's head. The imagery causes us as readers to long for God's salvation as we wait and we pray with Jacob. So let's look at these next three sons together. Each is brimming with hope as they anticipate enjoying God's favor and success. Uh, raiders shall raid at Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall enjoy, enjoy royal delicacies. 
Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So because of where Gad settles, the tribe must constantly deal with cross-border uh, raids from their neighboring countries. But ultimately, Gad prevails against all that attack them, especially in the time of David and Saul. And I've got zero Hebrew literacy, so I'm going out on a limb here, but um, I gather that this verse is very poetic. It's meant to be made up of the same repeated root word sounds, so something akin to a Hebrew version of the Dr. Seuss rhymes that our kids like. Yeah? Its meaning apparently matches the sound, which sounds a bit like a galloping horse that's charging forward during uh, an attack raid. Um, Asher's um, tribe settles in a rich and prosperous land. Asher means happy, and that's reflected in bountiful olive oil of iron and bronze, as well as Asher's long life and strength. These things in Asher's life lead, lead Moses to declare about him that he is most blessed, the favorite of his brothers in Deuteronomy 33:34. And Naphtali becomes a highland mountainous tribe. They become famous through Deborah and Barak service as judges. And the meaning of this verse from Naphtali's history is a little bit unclear to the commentators, but we do know, however, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, that Christ actually began preaching on the edge of the boundary of Naphtali's territory. Uh, for all who dwell in the region, in the shadow of death, as Isaiah prophesied, a light has dawned when Christ spoke, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So lastly, Jacob ad uh, addresses his two favorite sons, the ones he loves the most. Benjamin and Joseph are both Jacob's sons by Rachel, the wife he loved the most. And finally, before addressing his youngest son, Benjamin, Jacob's longest blessing is reserved for Jacob, the son who was deeply loved and then tragically lost, who was feared dead and then returned triumphantly to save the family. So let's read from verse 22 together. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. I think it's really hard to deny that Joseph turned out to be very much like a well-watered tree with branches heavily weighed with fruit. The low-hanging branches of Joseph reach out across national boundaries, offering bountiful produce to his own family, to Egypt, and to the whole world, as we're told in Genesis 41:57. Joseph's children will also be fruitful, with Gideon descending from Manasseh and Samuel descending from Ephraim, whose name conspicuously means twice uh, fruitful. Jacob continues, verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, and yet his bow remained unmoved. So Jacob's biograph uh, blessing biographically recounts the abuse that Joseph suffered in Genesis 37 at the hands of his brothers and then at the hands of Potiphar's wife. And yet despite the hatred of those who desired his death and ruin, here Jacob, here Jacob celebrates that his son prevailed. Jacob can easily be seen as a precursor and pointer to Christ in the way that he was tormented yet remained faithful. And, and steadfast in his suffering and his triumphant victory in the way that he becomes a source of blessing to the whole world. Now, Joseph doesn't accomplish everything that he does by being particularly strong or particularly smart. He has help, right? Jacob gives credit where credit is due as he gives a rich tribute to the source of Joseph's strength. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the stone of the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and blessings of the womb. So Jacob gives credit to God by referencing them with five titles, all reminding the brothers of the strength and security that come from God, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your Father, the Almighty. And the blessing is ongoing and absolute. It spans from the 
highest heights of heaven to the deepest ocean crevice. It spans from the birth of children and nursing infants to a a bountiful, strong, and prosperous uh, family of future generations. It's good to remember, as we think about that, that the God of Joseph is our God too. Any strength we have to endure hardship, to persevere despite mistreatment, to withstand temptation, all comes from Almighty God, our Shepherd, the Mighty One of Jacob. He holds us fast to allow us to prevail over the trials that Christians face. And we ought to pray that we might be enabled to follow in the uh, example of the saints of old, like Joseph, and indeed Christ himself. We must seek God's help to remain steadfast and faithful, to not be tossed around by attacks or trials or suffering. We need to plead for God's help because we're in such desperate need of the strength that only he can supply, and I think we can all attest to that. Without any suggestion of unfairness or jealousy, Jacob then delights to convey a blessing on Joseph and his descendants that exceeds anything experienced by Isaac or Jacob or any of his other sons. Verse 26, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. We understand that God will bless whoever he chooses, as he chooses, and it's good and right, because God himself uniquely knows what is right, and his knowledge and his insight are far beyond ours, and his actions and his decrees are perfect. Jacob now addresses his youngest precious son, Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. Jacob loved Benjamin deeply, and so it's a little bit surprising to hear this kind of harsh word out of the tender father. It helps us to remember that Jacob is delivering a prophetic word of God to his precious son and not just a final goodbye. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was renowned for their ferocity and their bravery. A common saying, apparently, of the other tribes as they entered battle was, after you, Benjamin. And this verse may also refer to the severe violence of the tribe of Benjamin in Judges 19 to 21. They commit quite ghastly sexual predation and violence, which triggers this massive war amongst the uh, tribes of the other brothers. Reluctantly, the other tribes fight a tearful battle with Benjamin whilst pleading with God that it could be avoided. Over four days, 90,000 Benjaminite men are killed, decimating the tribe and leading the surviving men to begin stealing women from surrounding nations. Now, despite these actions from Benjamin, there's still this great legacy. So there's Ehud the judge, there's Saul, the first king of Israel, and Saul of Tarsus, who we know had a life-changing encounter with Christ and became Paul and wrote much of the New Testament. So this prophecy of Benjamin could reasonably be seen in the life of his, could also be seen in the life of his descendant Paul, who starts as Saul as a zealous murderer, a ravenous devouring wolf in the dawn of his life. But praise God that in the twilight of Paul's life, he's able to partake in the rich spoils and the inheritance and treasure that he received in Christ. Later, uh, Moses has remarkable words for Benjamin, of whom he says, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. These last four chapters that we've been reading over the previous months are really important because Jacob's prophecies, much like Joseph's interpretations of dreams, are only possible because they are given a revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. And the future, which can only be known if revealed by God, can only be known because the future is decreed and ordained by God. 
God determines what will happen, regardless of whether we agree, regardless of whether we like it. God plans the course of our lives, and he does it with great purpose and love. So now we'll just come to the last portion of today's passage from verse 29. Jacob is speaking during the last moments of his life, and with his dying breaths, he's just offered God's prophetic blessing to each of his 12 boys, and we learn for the first time that they are to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so let's listen to these dying words from verse 29. Then he commanded them and said, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham uh, bought uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. But Jacob's like really, really specific uh, with what he's asking of his kids when it comes to his funeral arrangements. You'll recall that they've recently been rescued by Joseph from crushing famine in their land. But amidst the prosperity in Egypt, Jacob signals, this land is not my home. This is not the land of God's promise. Although they're in a land of plenty, Jacob yearns for the better land. He yearns for his family to dwell in the promised land. So even when he's dead and buried, he wants what is left of him to be in that land. He gives very specific instructions. This specific cave and this specific field and this town, east of that town, there's no vague request for a pleasant burial plot. And it isn't just a sentimental location. It's spiritually significant for Jacob. It's the land of promise. Jacob wanted to be buried in that place because he believed God. He believed the covenant blessing placed on his grandfather Abraham, on his father Isaac, and on him and his family. He trusted in God's coming salvation, which he cried out for with longing. And so this quaint burial plot also serves as a reminder to the coming generations of the promised land. Because as the next 400 years unfold, the family is not yet able to bury Jacob in that cave. But each generation does remember their obligation to bring Jacob to the land of promise. And so we've got maybe 10 or 20 generations who keep responsibility for this promised burial until it's accomplished during the Exodus. For 400 years, they're beckoned to the land of Canaan, generation by generation. They keep anticipating a future return to the promised land. And we know that Jacob's life doesn't occur in isolation. It fits within this lineage of families who are all part of God's unfolding promise. His grandfather, Abraham, was promised by God that he would become a great nation in a land given by God with descendants as numerous as the stars who would serve to bless the entire world. And yet Abraham doesn't see all these promises come to fruition. And neither does Jacob's father Isaac, and neither does Jacob. But all three of them end up buried to the west of the Dead Sea in modern-day Hebron. This is the future territory that was to be given to the tribe of Judah. And that's the tribe whose lineage leads to the long-awaited Saviour, Jesus Christ. God is at work, kind of in generation after generation. So I've got a question for you guys, and feel free to call out the answer if you work it out. Did you notice anything unusual about the mention of Jacob's wife in this last bit of the passage? Yeah? Why is that weird? That's right, she was not the favourite. Leah was not uh, the favourite. Abraham was buried with Sarah, Isaac was buried with Rebekah, and here we've got um, Leah to be buried um, with Jacob. She was, of course, Jacob's wife, but he had four. And you probably remember that Rachel was Jacob's favorite by a clear margin. And the favorite sons came from Rachel. 
But by the end of his life, Rachel is now buried midway along a road and Leah is given this special burial place that it's finally where Jacob wants to rest. Jacob's place in God's promised land among God's chosen people is more important to him than even his favorite wife, Rachel. And that's a spectacular challenge, I think, if we extrapolate it. Is God and his kingdom more important to us than the most important people in our lives? It's got more important than the most important things in this life. When we think about Leah, it's interesting to remember that Christ comes from the lineage of Judah, who comes not from Rachel, but from the marriage of Jacob and Leah. Isn't it funny how God often picks the people that we wouldn't anticipate? The scoundrels, the fishermen, the persecutors of the church, the less loved wife. And then at the end of his life, having accomplished all that Uh, God set out for him to do, having spoken all that God instructed him to say, Jacob just pulls his feet up under the duna and expires with one last breath out. A seriously epic way to finish. Surrounded by his family, directed in his words by God, the future legacy which God has granted him all gathered around his bed. His life is very different to this moment. I don't know if you guys remember all the strife and hardship and stuff earlier on, but now he's calm at last. He's serene. He's at peace. We don't like thinking about death and we like talking about it even less, but I think it's really precious to uh, be at peace with God like this. Regarding death, I think it's possible to live our days with an intimacy with God, to be forgiven and in daily obedience to Him and step with the Spirit which allows us this sort of dying peace. Given that death could literally strike any of us without notice at any time, I think we can draw inspiration from Jacob and be challenged to seek this profound peace offered by God, not just for our deathbed, but uh, it can be ours in the midst of life, even in the midst of tremendous hardship or suffering. As uh, Christians throughout the ages have discovered, you know, that it doesn't actually depend on our circumstances, right? That God enables us to find joy and peace, even in the midst of like just crazy stuff. But for Jacob, long gone are his days of trickery and desperate human striving, human effort. In their place is humility, dependence, trust, obedience, and peace. And so morbid though it may be, I pray that should the Lord call any of us home one of these days, that we would already be at peace with God, convinced that we had lived a life worthy of the calling, confident in our eternal security, and in the surety of God's sovereign plan for our families. I pray that we too, like Jacob, could get comfortable under our blankets and with deep satisfaction and anticipation, joyfully breathe our last. We're going to take a minute to just remember Christ and what he's done, share communion. Um, Look, obviously, so much of what we've been reading about in Genesis is just waiting, waiting, waiting. For that promised land, waiting for the promised saviour, waiting for the curse to be um, dealt with and undone. Um, and so we just benefit from being able to kind of read stories like the ones we've been reading today in light of the knowledge that God is faithful to his promises, that he does what he says, um, whether it's in the life of these brothers of Jacob, Isaac, um, or Abraham, Well, it's in our lives, yeah, that we know um, just from our own experience and experience 
collectively as a church, that God loves us, cares for us, and gives us more than we could think or ask for, um, and that um, Christ's death is far more than we deserve. Um, the fact that he enables us to draw close to him as unworthy people, made clean by Christ, is a, a great reason to celebrate. So as we take Christ, um, represent, representation of Christ's body and Christ's blood, let's um, just get together, chat to each other about what uh, God has done, the significance. Um, communion is absolutely open to anyone who um, is a follower of Jesus, who lives in repentance. Um, if you are just in a journey and you're not quite there, please um, just take some time, pray quietly, chat to people that are around you, um, and just wrestle with it. But we'd ask for you to just skip on communion until you're in that spot of submission to Christ. So and pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of uh, Jacob and Joseph and Judah. And ultimately, Lord, you are uh, God of our lives. We thank you that we have been privileged to to, to know uh, all that you have accomplished in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on that today, that you just just stir us deeply um, in our inmost being to reflect on uh, what matters and uh, and the significance of all that Christ has done. So uh, we thank you for, for Christ's body and his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.